The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, we're in Leviticus chapter 17 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to the book of Leviticus chapter 17. Looking at the entire chapter this morning as we continue to go through Leviticus, worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for all His rich mercies by hearing from His Word. So let's give our attention now as God Himself directs us, His people, through His holy and inspired Word from Leviticus chapter 17. Let's now hear the Word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is the end, or this is to the end, that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood of, on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the, his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I will give it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off, and every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water 
and be unclean until the evening, then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. This concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, we start off a new year with a new section in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 17 begins a new section that talks about holiness. The first 16 chapters we have seen Leviticus talk about the sacrifices that bring atonement topped off with the day of atonement that takes away sin. Now that atonement has been made, we move to talk about holiness. We move to talk about the requirement that God has for his people to be holy as he is holy. And we see from this layout that first, the sacrifice for sins must be made. Atonement must be supplied. And then and only then do God's people live holy lives. A holy life, obedience stems from first, the sacrifice for sin. And you may be surprised where God begins with his call to be holy. As we see from our chapter today at the head of this holiness section, it all begins with recognizing and guarding the sacredness of the sacrifice offered up for atonement for sins. That is, we are to defend the holiness, the set-apartness, the sacredness, the purity of the gospel. That is what this section is about. Some of you may be thinking, when are you going to get to that section on hunting? Do I really need to pour out blood? Have I been doing it wrong this whole time? We'll get there. I know that's the, the most pressing question, but we'll get there. So two components of our sacrifice that are to be held as sacred. The first is the holiness, or that is the set-apartness, the sacredness of the Savior. Verses 3 through 4 to begin with, if any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now, in order to understand this, it's important to recognize that this is talking about specifically sacrificial animals. It doesn't say you cannot kill and eat any animal. Rather, it's talking specifically about these sacrificial animals. We see elsewhere in Scripture, such as Genesis 9, and even a few verses later in, chapter, in verse 13, that they could kill and eat animals. But this only pertains to the sacrificial animals and specifically that they had to bring them to the tent of meeting that is the tabernacle. That's because that's where God's representative special presence was. And these sacrifices are only to be offered to God. And so these sacrifices needed to be brought to him. But the specific particular issue that God is addressing is found in verse 7. Where it says, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever 
for them throughout their generations. So this is addressing a specific issue of their day. This practice of goat demon worship in the ancient Near East. And by God saying they shall no more do this means that this is a practice that they had practiced. But as those who have been redeemed out of their old life of slavery in Egypt, they are to turn away from idols and they are to turn only to serve the living God. Now, goat demons were particular gods that uh, had the face and thighs of, of a goat. I mean, all these gods look really weird. It's kind of silly. It's almost, you see some of these gods, they look like, oh, my, my, my three-year-old could have drawn this. Very strange. But they believed in them. And what they uh, would do is they would sacrifice an animal and pour its blood into this open trench or an open hole. And they thought that they would go through some ritual and they thought that these goat gods would then reveal secrets of their enemies, or reveal secrets that would give them advantage, and would deliver them from some sort of difficulty as this blood sat in this open hole or this open trench. Now whether or not they knew they were doing this to demons, Demons were behind this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that offering to idols is actually offering to demons. And obviously the people of God were to turn away from such false worship and idolatry. However, what they could do was say, Hey, I'm going to go sacrifice to the Lord over here in this open field that nobody sees. You know, don't mind me. I'll just be out there. But in reality, they are worshiping this goat demon. They're going back to their own idolatry. And so God closes off this loophole by saying, if you sacrifice, it must be brought to me in the tabernacle. And if not, the consequences are severe. Verses 8-9 through nine say that the penalty is to be cut off from God's people. Uh, this is to be excommunicated. This is to be removed from among God's people, uh, which would be like a death sentence. Because they would be dwelling alone in the wilderness, away from a community, away from people that they could sell to and buy from and trade with. And so they would not be able to make a living. It was, this was like a death sentence. And sometimes being cut off even refers to being stoned to death, receiving the death penalty. It is a severe punishment because they have shed blood for the sake of sacrificing to idols rather than to God. Now, none of us are probably tempted to go home and worship a goat demon. At least I hope not. So, what's the application here? Is the application, hey, if just as long as you don't worship a goat demon, you're good. Well, no, obviously not. So how do we apply this? Well, there's a few ways. First, we see that we are to worship God alone. God uses the term whore or prostitute to describe this idolatry as he does throughout Scripture. Giving our worship to anything or anyone else, putting anything above God is more important, is like giving our marital love to someone other than our spouse. Second, we are to worship Him in the way He prescribes. God did not say, 
just as long as you're offering sacrifices, that's all that matters. I don't care about anything else. Well, we've seen in Leviticus that God's given even details. This is how you're to do it. I'm giving you exact details. I am going to be worshipped the way I want to be worshipped. And part of that is, is he says here, when you sacrifice, you need to come to my tent of meeting to offer these sacrifices. You know, I think as independent, free Americans, and, and praise God that we have the civil freedoms that we have, but I think that as free Americans and independents, we can start developing an attitude of, God really doesn't have the right to tell me what to do. I can worship God however I see fit, just as long as I worship Him. God does not have a right to command me to do something that inconveniences me, that requires me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow after Him. Which, by the way, taking up your cross was torture. They would understand it as such. But we can get the mindset of, you know, God wants to to make everything convenient for me. If he calls me to do anything difficult or inconvenient, then it must not be from him. Anything that I don't already agree with or calls me to self-denial and difficulty, I just call legalistic and claim a different interpretation, one that just so happens to perfectly suit my lifestyle. I'm independent. I get to decide. God, you have no claim on me. The God who made us and redeemed us, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Gets to command us how we worship Him. One of the main ways is that He calls us to gather at His tent of meeting, which today is the church in the new covenant, on His day, called the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. The God of the universe called this meeting. And we do not have the authority to cancel it. The one who gets to cancel this meeting is the one who called it, which is God. And he does so through, through his providence, such as we get sick. Uh, an emergency comes up. Or the weather prevents us from making it to church were snowed in or something like that. We may not refuse to come to his tent of meeting and offer up the right sacrifices that he calls us to. Now, some of us travel, and so when we travel, we go to another tent of meeting. We go to another place to worship him with his people. And I will tell you something that I have seen consistently over the last eight years in pastoral ministry is that the day that a particular person really needed that sermon is the day that that person decides to miss for whatever reason. And I think that's how Satan uh, as prowls around like a roaring lion and tries to destroy our faith. You know, coming to God's tent of meeting, to have Christ minister to your soul, brothers and sisters, through His Word read, preached, sung, and visibly portrayed is not a legalistic, harsh requirement from a hard master that just wants to restrict you. That is what Satan convinced 
the woman of in the garden. Did God really say you shall not? What a hard master. He just wants to restrict you. Look how restrictive he is that he would say you shall not. True living, having your eyes truly open, is to break outside of the boundaries that God has set. God is so legalistic. God is so suffocating in his burdens. His law is bad. You need to break out from that. That is where true living is. But coming to his tent of meeting to worship him is a good gift. Brothers and sisters, the God who commands us is the God who loves us. He loves us. He's not going to tell us to do anything that's going to harm us. He knows what's best for us. He knows that this is what's good for us. He's given us this day as a gift. He says that in, his, in Exodus 16, I have given you this day as a gift so that our souls are refreshed, so that we are strengthened, so that we are nourished. Oh, we can, we can always find something busy to do, can't we? And there's times that we, because of the, the job that we have, we're, we're called away from, from worship. But this is for our good. And we can always be busy with something that we think takes priority, like Martha did. Remember Martha and Mary? Martha's busy serving. She's not busy doing something evil. She's serving. She, she has all this stuff to do. And then she says, Lord, Mary's sitting there at your feet listening to your word. There's all this stuff to do. Why is she prioritizing hearing your word with being busy? And what did Jesus say? Oh, Martha, Martha, don't you know that Mary has chosen the better portion? By hearing Christ minister by his word. That is good. And so we miss out on his special blessings when we think ourselves to be wiser than him and break his commandments. So may we come to his tent of meeting. Third, we also see from this that there is no other Savior. There's no other sacrifice to deliver us. One of the reasons that we are attracted to idols is because they serve as functional saviors. We read this in Isaiah 44.17 where it speaks about the idolater and says, He makes the log into a god his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Since you are my God, lowercase g, deliver me. I look to you for deliverance. This is what idols are. These are things that we look to for deliverance. These goat demons back then, they sound strange to us, don't they? These rituals sound strange to us, but they were looking to them for deliverance. Give me some secret that would give me an upper hand over my enemies or to deliver me from the difficulties of this life. 
And we do the same thing when we look to idols to deliver us from our fears or worries or difficulties in order to provide us with peace, security, and joy that we should be finding in God. Now this is not to say that we can't find happiness and protection in certain created things of this world. Rather, what our idolatry is, is finding it in place of God. When we are not trusting in Him and therefore seeking to find it in something on this world. For us, our idols tend to be not images that we, like a goat demon that we hang on our wall, but materialistic and relational, of finding peace, comfort, and joy in place of God in relationships, vacations, getaways, hobbies, being rich materially. These are things that we put in place of God. And when we do it, it shows us our immaturity and our lack of trust in Him. Or finding it in a worldly identity. Whether it is being someone great so that people respect me. Or being someone beautiful. Being someone attractive so that I am loved and cherished. But we must guard in our heart the sacredness of the Savior. We must believe truly in our hearts that there is no other Savior or Deliverer. All the peace, comfort, hope, security, and strength we are looking for is ultimately found in Him. This is because Brothers and sisters, only He can deliver us from the curse. Everything that we dread, everything that we fear, everything that we get worried or anxious about or find difficulty, that we find difficult, has something to do with the curse that was brought about because of sin. Are you afraid of dying? afraid of getting a, a disease that might result in your death? And I think sometimes we think, well, that, that's, that's only the case when I'm young. But when I get old, I, I'll be able to handle it. It's not, not the case. It's, it's really the same even when we get old. Eventually, we're going to have to face our death. Well, Jesus has conquered death for you. When you die... You will go to be with Him in heaven. That's His promise. Why? Because you're worthy? No. You will never be worthy enough to stand before the Lord. But rather, it's because He has provided you with the righteousness not of your own. That He came from heaven to earth in our own flesh to obey the law that we would have failed to obey so that you who believe simply open up your empty hand, that's all you do, get credit for that perfect obedience. So God sees you as if you had perfectly obeyed your whole life. And so when you stand before Him, you will be standing on the basis of Christ's righteousness and Christ's obedience. And He took your fall. He shed His blood and He paid for all your sins. He drank that cup dry 
So there's not a drop of condemnation left for you. What is there to fear? He took care of it all for you. He didn't leave anything undone. And so when you stand before your Savior, it will be clothed in His righteousness. He's the one that, even through death as a servant, has brought you into His waiting arms. Are you disturbed by the difficulties of this life? Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. Why? For I have overcome this world. Only our Savior has done this. There's only one Savior who has done this. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been troubled by sin committed against you? God's promise is that all things work together for good only to those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. You may say, well, how can that be? How can that possibly be? Well, because your good, your ultimate good, is not you receiving your best life now in this world. Your ultimate good is being conformed into the image of His Son. And everything that happens is for the purpose of you being conformed into the image of God's Son. So that even afflictions, even hardships are used, even though they're painful and they hurt. Yet they are used to shape you and conform you into Christ's image, even though you may not see how at the moment. And nothing, nothing can overthrow God's purpose in conforming you into His image, even the difficulties and afflictions that we face. I remember going through one of the most difficult trials I've ever gone through in my entire life. Somebody that uh, betrayed me and abandoned me, who had promised to always be there by my side. And as hard as this was, this was the time I drew closer to God than I have ever drawn before. I remember taking my lunch breaks as I worked my overnight shift. And of course, you know, there was really nowhere to go you know, when you work overnight except some gas station and get you know, indigestion with uh, the gas station food. And so what I would do is I would just go out in the back. There's nobody there outside the building. It was dark out, three in the morning. And I would just cry. I'd cry out to God for a whole half hour. And it seemed like that time went by like this. You know, before, it was like getting me to pray was like trying to get me to go to the gym. Yeah, I know I need to do it. Yeah, I know I need to be disciplined. Yeah, I know it's for my good, but oh man, I really don't want to do it. Yeah, I'll do it later. Before you know it, all this time's passed. But but with this difficulty, you could not keep me away. I needed to talk with my God. I needed to pour out my heart to Him. Because it was at that time I realized I needed Him more than I knew before. And so God was using difficulty to draw me to Himself. And even though I lost a lot of sleep and it was quite miserable, it was a very important time in my life. I realized 
that God's power is not in taking away the thorn in the flesh, but it's in Him showing His strength through weakness. And only the Savior can do this. Only the Savior can strengthen us in weakness. Are you disturbed by your own sin? Maybe you're weighed down by the struggle that you have. You've fallen into the same sin again. You have this besetting sin and it it just doesn't seem to go away. Will it ever go away? It seems to gain the upper hand. That's the time where we can begin to start looking for other saviors. Thinking that our Savior is, is myself, my power. Just tell me what to do so that I can deliver myself. Just give me the right steps. Give me that secret. Reveal the secrets to me so that I can implement it. But our Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And only He is able to deliver us from our remaining sin. And so we don't merely look to the law and find out what our duty is in order to be delivered from our sin. Even though His law is good, His law is right, and we must look to it. But it's not what delivers us. It's not what affects change. It doesn't empower us. Just hearing, put off grumbling, put off impurity, be thankful, do not lust. If I tell you that, if I say, don't grumble, stop complaining, be thankful, are you going to go home and be thankful? Try it. I told you, be thankful. Here's your application. Be thankful. Let's see how long that lasts. We need to hear it. We need to do it. But what's the power to do it? And of course, the legalist thinks that the power is the promise of the law, the covenant of works. You better do this if you want to live, if you want to make it to heaven in the end and avoid hell. We are not delivered that way. We don't look to the law for our power. Rather, we are delivered by the promises of the gospel. Because you are no longer guilty, you are no longer a slave of sin. You are an adopted son. Sin shall no longer be your master. Why? Because you are no longer under the law as a covenant of works. That you are under grace. These are the promises of the gospel. That is how we fight and battle sin. This is where we get power to put forth effort in putting sin to death. From the promises of the gospel, not only is promises declared verbally, but God has given us a visible promise in baptism. Baptism is that visible promise of the gospel. You have died to your old self. You have been washed clean. Your old self is dead, buried in the grave, and you have come out a new creature in Christ with his resurrected life in you. Christ is in you. The hope of glory. These are the promises by which we fight sin. By which we have that power that we need to fight and battle and claw against it. And we also have the promise 
that Christ alone will deliver us from this body of death. We fight sin. We, we seek to put sin to death. But even the Apostle Paul, as he's writing the Holy Bible, we've done, we, you, you may think that you've done some really good works, but have you ever written part of the Bible? Must be a really holy man, huh? Must be at the top of the top. What does Paul say as he's writing the Holy Bible? Wretched man that, does he say I was? That I am, present tense. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I will by trying hard. I just give me the right method, God, and I'll. No, rather he says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So even in our battle against sin, we look to Christ and his deliverance and the promise that he will glorify us. As 1 John 3 says, Whoever has this hope in him, that when we see him, we will be like him, purifies himself as he is pure. So we look to this one Savior. We look to this one sacrifice for deliverance from our sin. And no other Savior is there. And this relates to the second component of our salvation, which is to be held as sacred. Really, there's not much difference between these two points. But, you know, I already sent out the the bullet, uh, the outline and for the bulletin, so I had to keep the outline. Second is, is holiness or set-apartness of the blood. Look at verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So it doesn't matter if you're an Israelite, non-Israelite, anyone who eats blood, that is bloody meat or blood in the meat, uh, will be cut off. They must drain all of it before eating. Otherwise, God will set his face against him. That is, God will judge him in his wrath. And the reason for this is stated in verses 11 through 12. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I will, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So the reason for this instruction is not for health or sanitary reasons. Rather, it's because the life of the animal is in its blood. It makes sense. It loses its blood. It loses its life. You can say that the life of the animal is in the blood. Now, it's not that there is anything magical about the, the blood or that it's wrong to kill animals. Rather, it's because of what this blood symbolizes during this time in redemptive history. Their blood, the blood of the sacrifices, these animal sacrifices, is what God had given to make atonement for their souls, to cancel out their sins, that they may be forgiven. The life of the animal is in its blood, but it gives up its life by having its blood shed, by losing its blood, so that the sinner may live. It's life for life. Rather than the sinner losing its, his life, the animal loses its life 
And so since this life makes atonement for them, and this life is in its blood, its blood is to be regarded under the old covenant when animal sacrifices are still being given as sacred. And notice who gives this provision. It is God. God says, I'm the one who gave it to you. Who's the one who wants to be reconciled to sinners? It's God. God's the one who desires it, and God's the one who provides it for us. And of course, this points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's The gift is not ultimately in an animal He created, but in His eternal, uncreated Son that He gave for our life, that Jesus lost His life, that we may live. And so all these types and shadows in the animals can never ultimately atone for blood or atone for sin. The only thing they did is atone in this sacrificial tabernacle system where they were they would not be excommunicated, where they would not be stoned to death, where they could still be within the life of Israel. It was the animal blood that that caused them to still uh, be there and not to be sent away. But this was only an earthly copy of the true blood that takes away sin and brings eternal redemption. Now what about other instances of animal death or shedding animal blood? Well, we see in verses 13 through 14, it speak of hunting. And this is the moment where some of you have been waiting for. You may hunt, but you, it says here, cannot eat blood. Instead, you have to drain the blood on the ground and then cover it up with dirt. Now, this does not apply today. It applies only under the Old Covenant because God brings up the same reason in verses 13 and 14 as He does in verse 11. That the life of the animal is in the blood. And Why is that important? Well, because it makes atonement for them under the Old Covenant so as to be treated as sacred. So cover up the blood so that not even an animal eats uh, the blood. And this practice of covering up the blood probably also has reference to the goat demon worship. Remember, goat demon worship is you'd keep an open hole and you'd put the blood in there so that it would magically bring out secrets through the blood, but so that there's no confusion and making it clear this is not what's being practiced. You would cover it up so it pertains to their day. Then verses 15 through 16 pertain to what we would call roadkill, I guess, to use our vernacular. Uh, This is an animal that dies of natural causes or is killed by a predator. Again, in their day, they would become unclean uh, by eating it uh, because it's associated with death. But this again reveals the need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. But what this is revealing is that the blood of a sacrifice that makes atonement for sin is sacred and must be regarded as such. And how do we apply this as New Covenant Christians? Well, it is by regarding the blood of Christ, which makes atonement for our souls as sacred. That is, we regard no other sacrifice, no other work, nothing else in all of creation that can bring forgiveness for our sins. We do not defile the work of Christ by adding any of our filthy rags of works righteousness to it. That is, we believe no other gospel, 
And we add nothing to the gospel. We fervently embrace and believe it and defend its purity. This is what we saw in the book of Galatians where the Apostle Paul said, if anyone, I don't care who he is, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven, I don't care if it's an apostle, I don't care if it's your favorite Bible teacher that you grew up listening to. If anyone comes and brings a different gospel than the one declared in the Scripture, he is to be anathema. He's to be cut off. He is to be sent to hell, damned to eternal hell. Adding any of our good works to Christ's saving work is to trample underfoot the Son of God and profane the blood of the covenant by which it was sanctified. Now, it doesn't make good works bad. They're good works. We are to do good works. But we are not to rely on those good works in any way to keep us out of hell or get us to heaven. Rather, these good works only flow out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And so we do not intermix our good works in any way with the work of Christ. Our good works do not contribute to our salvation. Our good works do not complete our salvation. Our good works do not keep our salvation. Rather, our good works flow out of the salvation that we receive as a free gift by the work of Christ alone. And so may we, first and foremost, regard as holy, as completely set apart, as sacred, the only sacrifice, the blood of Christ, which alone takes away all our sins. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please help us to look only to the Savior. Even in our idolatry, even as we, as we struggle with functional saviors, we look to the Savior to deliver us from these. So give us the strength and power and motivation by the promises of the gospel. Sin shall no longer be our master. It isn't our master. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are freemen. We are no longer guilty. We are no longer slaves. We are sons. Help us to honor you with our lives, even when it is inconvenient for us. For Jesus, your son, has said, if anyone does not take up his cross, deny himself and follow after me, cannot, is not a disciple of mine. And so, Father, we cannot follow you, we cannot obey, we cannot live for you in our own strength. It must be another power. It must be the power of the gospel, which, is, which alone frees us from all our sins. May we look to that, no other Savior, and then help us, Father. Help us. Give us that motivation. Be a, in, as you promise, work in us both to will to want to, and to work for your good pleasure. And as a consequence, may we do work. May we work this out with fear and trembling. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. 
To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.